don't know about you, but I love um, those old medieval movies with castles and kings. Um, stories like Lord of the Rings. I was so excited to see uh, a new chapter in that story. Um, and, and, and it's there's just something about the, the imagery of those castles, right? These just massive walls um, made out of hewn stone. And, and it's just, they're almost impenetrable. Um, and, and they have these gates that, that they're able to close up. So when the enemy starts to attack, they can retract the door. They can shut the gate and keep the enemy at bay and, and not allow them to just come in and invade the, the city or the town the way they're designed. And they fortify themselves. And this is, this, this is normally uh, effective in these movies, uh, but every once in a while, there's an enemy that comes along with superior technology called the battering ram. And, and this, this ram is manned by, you know, 50, 100 people on either side. And, and they're focusing all of their individual energy into one point on that door because they know if they can at least breach the door, then there's a good chance they can then take out the door. And once the door is gone, it doesn't matter how big your walls are. It doesn't matter how tall they are. It doesn't matter how thick they are. Once that door is gone, they have access. And once they have access, the potential for victory increases. And I often think about this illustration and example when it comes to the church because the Bible talks about the fact that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And, and I don't know why, but that's just where my mind goes is seeing this imagery of thousands of Christians joining hands, working together to just bust down the gates, whether it's in a particular city or in the world in general. And this idea of Christians working together to overcome what seems like an insurmountable project, especially individually. But the sad thing is, as I've surveyed the church and as I look out over the world in which we live, and my experience in the last 47 or so years that God has allowed me to live, I don't see that battering ram imagery happen very often. Instead, what I see is a lot of individual people with whatever they can grab just flailing at a door. And they're going up and they're beating against the wall and they're beating against it, but nothing's happening because it's just them. Because they've bought into this idea that honestly, if we think about it, it's, it's way more American than it is Christian, but that we should be individualistic, that we should do things ourselves, that we shouldn't work together. And because of that, we are where we are. We have allowed the enemy to splinter us and divide us into so many factions and so many groups that it's hard to even get a hundred people together to grab a battering ram anymore and work together. Because I can't work 
with that guy. That, that guy doesn't worship the way I worship. That guy doesn't look the way I look. And we can't come together as a body and as a church and do what we are called to do, which is to take the gospel into a lost world, a sinful world controlled by our enemy. We are marching into enemy territory. That is our orders from our King Jesus. Now, many of us are trying to do that, but we're trying to do it by ourselves. We're going it alone, and we're equipped inadequately for the job alone that God has tasked us to do. But the truth is, the reality is, we need each other. God didn't design Christianity to be an individual sport. It was never intended to be something that you did by yourself. It was always God's plan from the beginning to be done in the context of church working together. And this morning, as we continue our series, Peace on Earth, I want to look at the importance of unity. We talked first in the first sermon about why peace was so important to God. And we also talked about the cost and the price in which God paid so that we could have peace. And this week, I want to look at why it is so important that we are people of peace. That we are unified within our own body. So this is, this is more of a message for those of us in the church than out of the church this morning. Every once in a while, we, we need to have some of these messages where we just kind of huddle up and say, hey, let's, let's reevaluate ourselves. And that's, that's going to be my focus this morning. I want to look at why it's so important for us to be people of peace. And that isn't peacemaking in this sermon outside of these walls as much as it is inside of these walls. And the reason that we need to have this peace is so that we can work together to do what God has called us to do and to be on mission with Him. I want to look at Ephesians 4, and you might say, Dale, we just went through Ephesians. Yeah, that was like five or six months ago. If you can tell me the points from my sermon on Ephesians 4, I will stop preaching. That's what I thought. I want to look at a couple of verses and just kind of let this be our framework as we talk about unity in the body of Christ. Let me read it to you. He starts in verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions 
the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So when we talk about peace, on earth, when we talk about what it means to be a peacemaker, the idea of unity is incredibly important. One of the first things that we have to understand about the nature, though, of Christian unity from this text this morning is that people don't create unity. God does. We can't create it. Only God can. Unity is not something we can have a class on on Sunday morning at 10 o'clock and ask you to all come and I can teach you how to be unified. It is only God who brings unity. It is not something we can just learn and do ourselves. It has to be given by God. So that's the first thing I want you to see. Notice in in verse 3 of chapter 4 eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Are we to create it? No, we are to maintain it. That's our role in the concept and the idea of unity. Not to create it, but to maintain it. It's something that is God-given by our Savior. This is something that as I was talking about in the first week, that when we talk about peace, it's so much bigger than just being reconciled with God. And again, don't get me wrong, that's huge. That alone should cause us to worship for the rest of our lives. But it's so much bigger than that. Because God is reconciling every area, every aspect of our life, every aspect of the world that we live in. And there is a complete peace that comes over us and it should control us. And part of that peace we see is this idea that that we are maintaining and we are part of God's community, the church. So it's first and foremost important to remember that we don't create unity. God does. See, Christian unity, unlike other people who are gathered around other individual causes, as Christians, we are gathered around Jesus Christ. We are gathered around a person. He's the one that creates the unity. He's the one that is the author of the unity. He he holds all things together by his very being. Second thing that we need to understand about Christian unity is that it is to love Jesus Christ and to make him known 
to others. We, we are to love Jesus Christ and make him known to others. This is what unifies us. This is what draws us together, right? That is our call. That is what we are commanded to do as Christians. We are to love the Lord thy God with all of our heart, and we are to love others as ourselves. And when, when we do that, what is, the, what is the absolute best thing we can do for ourselves? Tell ourselves the gospel, right? Preach the gospel to ourselves. That is the absolute best thing that we can do as a Christian. We need to hear the gospel. And if we love other people the way we love ourselves, we're going to be telling them the gospel. We're going to be sharing it with them because we believe, we see that it's the absolute best thing for our lives. Perhaps one of the reasons you struggle with sharing the gospel is you struggle to believe that you need to hear the gospel. You struggle believing that it's the absolute best thing for you to hear. That's how we show that love to other people, by sharing the gospel with them. By making Jesus known to the whole world. That is what we are to be unified around. So I want to look this morning at, at five commitments that, that this text teaches that we need to make this morning to maintain or cultivate or demonstrate this unity in our lives. The first commitment is to love Jesus Christ above all things and to sacrifice all of our other many agendas for his sake. And I don't care how great the agenda is, compared to Jesus Christ, it is a mini agenda. So our first commitment is to love Jesus Christ above all things and to sacrifice all of our other many agendas for his sake. Look at verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Paul doesn't see himself as a free man. He doesn't see himself as a person who can run his own agenda and do whatever he wants. He's underneath the lordship of Christ. He sees himself as a prisoner to Christ, as a prisoner to his, to his gospel in his message. It's not about Paul. It's about Jesus. When you read the New Testament, that's something you see over and over and over again. I encourage you, go read 2 Corinthians. Paul's bragging, right? There's, there's a problem with these pastors that have come into the Corinthian church and they're bragging about their accolades and their accomplishments and look at all the things we've done. And Paul says, well, I can do that too. I've been lashed. I've been beaten. <laughs> right? He, he, he has suffered mightily. For Paul? No. For Jesus. It's all about Jesus. 
We also see it in verse 15 through 16. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him, who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Because it's, listen, it, it, it's fine to give yourself wholeheartedly to certain missions, certain ministries, certain moral issues. But you've got to understand that all of that has to come second to Jesus Christ. So many times what happens is we tend to give ourselves to these various things which are good things. They're not bad things. Don't hear me say that. Missions is a very good thing. Working in, in clinics to prevent abortions is a good thing. But all those things are secondary compared to Christ. Because the danger is, guys, and this is what tends to happen in our hearts. And I'm sure you've seen this. And like me, you've probably even been guilty of what I'm about to say. Is when we elevate those causes, those ministries, those things above Jesus we start to judge other people, right? We start to look at other people and say, well, they don't care about missions. Are you even really a Christian? They don't really care about abortion. Are they really even a Christian? Just because they don't have that passion and desire that God has placed in you, we begin to judge them. We begin to look at them and think less of them. I don't even know if they're Christians, right? I mean, they, don't, they don't seem to believe in missions at all. They don't believe in standing up for the rights of the unborn like I do. Do you think they're even Christians? So this is what happens when we get caught up in our own many agendas. Our own political parties. When we start worrying about things like worship styles more than Jesus, rather than being unified, rather than coming together under the umbrella of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we begin to set up these separate camps and pull ourselves apart. We are not a unified body. So we need to commit to love Jesus Christ above all things and to sacrifice all of our little mini agendas for his sake. The second commitment that we need to make this morning is to sound doctrine, which never sacrifices the truth, but always prioritizes it in a spirit of grace. We need to prioritize sound doctrine. Look at Ephesians 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Verse 13, until we all attain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Again in verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every 
joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We have to be growing in our knowledge of doctrine and understanding God's word. Why? Well, verse 14 tells us why. So that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. We have to be growing in our understanding of doctrine. You might think that's counterintuitive, right? That that the way to unify is to kind of stop talking about doctrine and to kind of put some of those things aside, but God knows better. God knows that a a church without doctrine is like a body without a skeleton. It just falls to the ground, right? It's just a lump of nothing. There has to be that framework. There has to be that basic understanding that is guiding us and leading us. Otherwise, what will happen is every time any kind of person comes along with some kind of new idea, new teaching that he has, the church will get pulled off away from the gospel. And if you study church history, sadly, that is what has happened over and over and over again. In the past, when there hasn't been an emphasis on doctrine, the church believes, then people come along and say, I've got a new idea. I got a word from God. And this is what God has told me. And people follow after them, right? Away from the gospel, away from God's word. But we need to be unified around sound doctrinal teaching. One of the reasons why we typically preach through books of the Bible is because we want you guys to grow in your understanding of the Word. This is where our doctrine and theology come from. It doesn't come from reading other books. And those other books may be helpful in clarifying some of the things that we read in the Bible. But ultimately, our doctrine comes from the Bible. And so it's important for us as Christians to be working through the Word together, walking through the Word regularly and together. But not just studying it, not just reading it, but living it. Not just being hearers of the Word, but doers of the Word. Going out into our community and allowing our lives to be changed by God's word. And that change produces a different result in the community. It produces a different result in our workplaces. It produces a different result in our schools. It produces a different result in our families. Because it's not just about Sunday morning for an hour. It's about a different kind of life that God is calling us to. And we need doctrine to understand our limitations as people. Notice in this text, if you look at the wording that is used here, until we attain the unity of faith, growing up, maturing, right? There's an understanding here in the text that, that we're never going to have perfect knowledge here. We're, we're never going to completely understand everything about doctrine here on this earth because our minds are limited our understanding is limited so we we have to understand that while doctrine is incredibly important 
there's always going to be a limitation on what we know. Guys, listen, some of the things that I thought I knew 10 years ago, I now realize how youthful and foolish I was. And 10 years prior to that, there were some things I thought I knew that realizing now, looking back, I realize was very youthful and very foolish. Matter of fact, I keep some of those books on my shelf to remind me of how stupid I was. Lest I start to think I know everything. So we have to be humble. I, I have to understand that I'm, I'm constantly maturing and growing. And this, this is important for us. And this helps us to do what we're called to do in verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we uh, grow up in every way in Him who is the head into Christ. We speak the truth in a way that emphasizes grace. You see, when you have this humility of understanding that we are always maturing, there is always something more I can learn, there is always something new I can understand, there's a humility about you. But once you start to think you know how it should be done perfectly, the humility starts to dissipate and the pride starts to increase. But when we speak the truth in a way that emphasizes grace, it emphasizes the love that we have for other people. We don't use our doctrine as a hammer to beat people over the head with. We instead love them. We speak the truth to them. We don't hide it. But we don't get upset and offended if they're not exactly where we are right this minute. Because the reality is, you weren't either five years ago, ten years ago, six months ago. And it's only by God's grace that you're growing in your understanding. So we need to have patience. The third commitment that goes with this is that we are to develop Christ-like character, especially humility and submission. The third commitment is that we are to develop Christ-like, a Christ-like character, especially humility and submission. Verse 2 says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You know the great enemy of unity? Pride. And that's why in so many passages of Scripture that call for unity, we see an urging for humility and mutual submission. Just before Paul calls us to unity in verse 3, he talks to us about humility and patience in verse 2. And in Philippians 2, 3 through 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Other people that agree with you, other people that believe the Bible the exact same way as you, everyone. Let each of you not only not only to his let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. See, this, this is where it gets hard. Okay? Because up until this point, some of you heard, woo, commitment to doctrine. I am good with that. 
I'm totally fine committing to doctrine, teaching that stuff, because I can control that. I can read it, I can learn it, I can understand it, I can even tell other people about it. But where the rubber meets the road, and where it gets real hard for us, is the idea of humility and submission. Because as you're working with people, you are working with Christians that are all over the growth chart. Some of, you, some of whom are, are going to be baby Christians, just learning to crawl. Some are going to be toddlers, and they're kind of getting their legs, and they're learning how to walk. Some of them are going to be teenage Christians, and they're kind of rebelling a little bit against God and some of the things that God has taught them. And they're, they're wanting to push back a little bit. If you don't have humility, if you're not mutually submitted, then I assure you, you are going to struggle. Being able to teach God's Word with love, you're going to struggle with that. And you may can teach it, but your life, your ministry, isn't going to be marked by one of love. If you're constantly telling everybody how they should live their life, it's not going to be a ministry marked by love. Now, practically, let me help you. This is what this looks like. Somebody comes to you, maybe in your small group, maybe after church, and they confess to you, and I am struggling with this. Fill in the blank, whatever this is. Do you immediately tell them what they're doing wrong? Or do you take time to listen and think, oh, I've been guilty of that too. You know what? Right now, I'm guilty of that too. It looks different. It doesn't look the way yours looks. Maybe in a different area of your life. But I'm struggling with this. To get us to do that, it takes humility. But so often what we do is we slip into pride and say, let me tell you the answer. I have a verse for that. And we, we just want to get to the correction part. We just want to tell people how to live their lives. And that's why we need less pride and more humility. Now, don't mishear me. You're going to have to speak the truth to them. But it's a whole lot different speaking the truth to them in love when you first connected and identified with them and their sin. And that they see that you too are a sinner. Not that you have all the answers, you've got it all figured out, but you're connecting with them on the level that every one of us if we're honest and humble, can connect to this morning because we all share the same sin condition. It manifests in different ways. It looks differently. But we all have it. None of us have arrived. And reminding yourself, and we need to constantly remind ourselves that we too are still sinners. 
And the way we do that is we ask God, how does this sin show up in my life? And to take that next step and to confess to that person and say, you know what? I struggle too with that sin. I struggle too with, say, idolatry as well. Every time I go down Highway 90, I'm struggling with idolatry because I think I'm the most important person on the road and everyone should bow down and part and worship me and get out of my way. So, you know, this idolatry that you're struggling with in this relationship, and you've kind of put that person up on a, on a pedestal. Man, I, I get that. Like, I, I've ha- I have those same feelings of idolatry. I have that same sinful condition in my life. And I have to be reminded constantly that I need the gospel. It takes humility to be able to confess your sins. Often, first. Before they do. Because that person may not have even gotten to the place of understanding of what their sin problem is. They're coming to you with a symptom. They're coming to you with like the leaves of the tree. And you know what the trunk and the root is. Because you have been humble enough to examine your own life and to see where that leads. And so as you go first, and they may confess to you the symptom, but you confess to them the heart issue, then you open up their eyes to the fact of, oh, my problem is not alcoholism. I have a worship problem. Right? You're you're moving them away from the symptom of the problem to the heart of the problem. But by us going first and by us confessing and modeling confession and repentance, we're teaching them something completely different. Then we are speaking the truth in love. The fourth commitment that we need to have To maintain unity is to respect and to pursue the God-given diversity and accept one another as Christ has accepted us. In verse 11 and 12 it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. As you look throughout the Bible in places like Romans 12, 3 through 8, the same theme appears in 1 Corinthians 1, 21 through 27 and Colossians 3. We see that by God's very design, his family is filled with people of all races, all ages, all socioeconomic groups. And within that, they're all gifted differently. And what we should do as a church is celebrate that diversity. But too many times what we tend to do is we tend to congregate with those who are like us. And we tend to shun those who are not like us, those who make us uncomfortable. We should stop trying to become a church of people who all look the same, who all act the same. It's a, a rich diversity that makes the church more interesting and creative and vigorous and alive. 
God has created his body, his church, and he wants it to be diverse. He wants it to look different. Do you celebrate that diversity? Or do you instead try to go to the places that make you feel comfortable because of uniformity? Hear me this morning. Unity is not the same as uniformity. Unity is not the same as uniformity. We can be unified around God, the gospel, and be unified around Jesus Christ, but it doesn't mean we're all going to look the same and act the same. And it's okay for us to be different. I would even go so far as to say that's by design. The fifth and final commitment is to strive earnestly and prayerfully to pursue peace, to resolve conflict, and to preserve relationships despite personal differences. To strive earnestly and prayerfully to pursue peace, to resolve conflict, and to preserve relationships despite personal differences. Now this is something that Paul urges us to do in verse 3. Before that, he says he's urging us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to our call. He wants us to maintain and to be a part of that kind of unity. And I want you to think about who Paul is for just a quick second. And maybe you don't know. Maybe you're here and you don't know who Paul is. Well, let me, let me tell you, Paul was a church planter. He was, he was the kind of guy that would go around and get a group of people together, and he would start a church. And he would go from city to city, and a lot of times, this is places that he had never been to before, or maybe he had been there as a guest traveling through the city. And he would set up camp sometimes for months, sometimes for almost two years, and he would begin to preach the gospel, and people would gather around him to hear him preach the gospel, and they would continue to gather around him And ultimately, a church would be birthed and formed out of this group of people. And then Paul would say, okay, you're the most mature person. And you have all the characteristics that we're looking for. You're in charge. See you later. And he'd move on to the next place. And now, listen, don't get me wrong. Some of you are like, man, that's crazy. How would he just leave hundreds of people in the care of a couple of people. He typically didn't, right? Most theologians think the church at Hebrews was like 18 people, right? So these were small groups of people, small groups, right? That, that, that were planted in all of these different cities that would continue to grow and multiply and, and create more of these small groups of churches. But he would go on to the next city and he would take the gospel somewhere else. And throughout the Bible, the New Testament is Paul writing letters back to those people where he had planted the church. Almost exclusively. There's a couple of exceptions. And normally, you know what he's having to tell them to do? Be unified. Right? Because there's all these different kind of people that were coming together. And at one point, he's he's even having to talk to both slave and slave owners. Because the slave was the preacher of the group. And that was a little awkward for some of the slave owners. So Paul understands all about the struggle that we have when conflict, in in conflict that arises when you get a group of people together. Because I don't care what kind of group you get together. 
As long as it is a group of people, mark my words, there will be conflict. So Paul is writing and teaching frequently about how unity is being threatened by these conflicts within these local congregations. And he, he puts out letter after letter to them, encouraging them to be unified. Because of what Paul knew about our enemy. You see, Paul knew we, we have an enemy. The church has an enemy. And he's trying everything he can to get you to not like the person sitting next to you. Some, some of you wives were a little... First and foremost, though, he starts with the family, right? Some of you husbands and wives are like, yep, I know exactly what you're talking about. He, he wants to destroy that unity first. But he's not satisfied with that. He wants the same thing to happen in the church. He wants to get you to a place to where you can't stand the other people in the church so much that you don't even want to come. And when you do come, you're miserable. You're anxious because you might run into this person or you might see this person. Even today, he's sowing those seeds. Maybe it was before our service this morning. You were here early and you got coffee and a careless word was said by somebody, not knowing where you're at in your life. And the enemy planted a seed. And he's cultivating it, trying to create conflict. When the reality is that person had no idea where you're at in your life. And they were just making a joke, but they didn't realize how close your marriage is to falling apart. Or they didn't realize how close your life is to falling apart. And somebody says the wrong thing, and that seed of conflict is sown by the enemy. And Paul teaches us the best way to stop this is to be humble and gentle towards those who irritate us. To patiently overlook minor offenses and to bear with those who disappoint us and lovingly correct those whose sins are too serious to overlook. There's a lot of times when people don't even realize what they're saying. And it's in those times that we have to be humble enough to not sit there and think they are attacking us. Because when we do that, we're saying it's all about me, which is pride, not humility. It's the opposite of what God is asking us to do. And so you, you begin to take it all personally, and then you get angry. But we've got to be humble enough to be able to overlook that. But then there are times when it's just too serious, when, when their sin is so offensive that, that we're going to have to go up and talk to them and make it right. I just preached a message a couple weeks ago about this whole subject on anger to help you to know when you should overlook and when you should confront. I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you weren't here. We, we have to be committed to pursuing peace and resolving conflict. And when we do that, we're going to be able to say with one voice, listen, that we're a church filled with conflict. It's all over the place. Again, every group has it. 
But just because we have conflict doesn't mean we're going to stop. It doesn't mean we're going to walk away, right? Just because I have conflict in my marriage, it doesn't mean I'm going to walk away from my marriage. I'd have been walked away a long time ago. In reality, Amber would have walked away a long time ago. In the same way, just because there's conflict within the church, I'm not going to walk away from the church. Instead, I'm going to fight for those relationships. I'm going to fight for peace. I know that sounds counterintuitive, right? But we're called to fight for peace. And that's not easy. The easy way is always to walk away. The easy way is to go find another church. The easy way is to sit home, watch a live stream, and never have to deal with people or conflict. That's the easy way out. Don't take the easy way out. When Jesus says, take up his cross and crucify yourself, does that sound like the easy way out? He wants us to be agents of peace. He wants us to be committed to peace. So as I close this morning, what happens when we're committed to these five things? Well, several things happen, and I'm just going to look at just a couple. There's a harmony of shared lives with people who regularly meet together, eat together, pray together, worship together, and work together. There's a harmony of shared lives. We see it throughout the New Testament, but we should also be seeing it in our daily lives. As we continue to work together for the sake of the gospel, there should be a harmony that exists in our lives. Second, there's absolutely zero room for discrimination, zero room for discrimination against race, gender, age, economic status. We should be a church, a, a place that it doesn't matter who walks through those doors, they are welcomed. No matter what they look like, no matter what their economic status is, all of us are equal at the foot of the cross. Third, there should be a commitment to seek genuine understanding and agreement rather than an imposed uniformity. There should be a commitment to seek genuine understanding and agreement rather than an imposed uniformity. What I mean by that is this. We should not try to impose a rigid uniformity on others or force them out through a political process. And it's sad to say, again, but growing up in the church, I saw this far too many times. There were people that didn't look a certain way, they didn't act a certain way, they didn't speak a certain way, or they just had too many issues. And they were made to feel so uncomfortable until they finally left. And, I, and I've, I just have this picture of these church leaders, and I'm, and I'm praying that it wasn't the pastors, but it may have been. These, these church leaders are like high-fiving each other because so-and-so stopped coming. We accomplished our goal. We've done it now. Look, we, we have to be a unified church. And that doesn't mean that we're all going to look the same. And it's sad because, again, living in this community my whole life, I've heard of church leaders that stand at the door and tell people, you are not welcome here. 
We need to work toward being a place that pursues genuine understanding and agreement. We're going to differ on some things. But we've got to be able to talk about them and work them out and come to places where we can agree. Do you realize how foreign that would look to the world that we live in? To see a group of people gathered together, working together, that had different beliefs and different ideas about things? That would be so countercultural to the world that we live in in America right now. Fourth, there should be a freedom to respectfully disagree with one another. You may, not, you may not believe exactly the way I believe, and that's okay. We're still brothers in Christ. Now, why would I say that? Well, because we're all still maturing. They, they may still be maturing in their understanding. And hey, if we're being humble, we may still be maturing as well in our understanding. But we've got to be a place where there's freedom to engage and to respectfully disagree with each other, but then not be ripped apart because of it. Finally, we need to be working productively toward common kingdom goals and invest our spiritual and material resources as effectively as possible. Instead of being pulled in all these directions, we need to be focused for us as a church, that focus is on making disciples and planting churches. That's what we've done from the beginning. That's where we spent our time, our energy, and our resources. I'm excited in a couple of weeks, you're going to get to hear from a new church planter from Tulsa that we're supporting, that, that he's coming to preach and meet all of you guys. Some of you he's met, but to, to get a chance to meet all of you. Planting a very different looking church than our church, a very diverse church compared to the way we are, but a church desperately needed in that city. We don't need to be pulled in a million different directions. And so here at Church on the Way, <laughs> some of you know this, you've been around long enough, don't come up to me and tell me about a ministry idea. I mean, do. I want you to. But understand, we make disciples. That's what we do at Church on the Way. We don't do a million ministries. That's what you do. The biblical model is we equip the saints for the work of ministry. Not the church does all the ministry and tries to wrangle volunteers to help us. That's the exact opposite of the biblical model. No, you've got a ministry idea? Great. Go find two or three people that share your passion and your heart to do it. Right? Because we don't need long rangers. We don't need individualistic people. But find a couple of people. Come back. And we as a church will resource you. We'll support you. We'll help you. We will encourage others to help you. But that's y'all's ministry. And if for some reason the Lord moves you to a different city or promotes you up to heaven, 
that ministry may go away. Because the people that were passionate about doing it are no longer, we're not just going to artificially keep ministries going on life support because we've always done it. Right? So we're working productively together toward our common kingdom goals. Focusing on kingdom goals breeds strong relationships. And maybe a better word for that is durable relationships. Relationships that can withstand the test of time, that grow stronger rather than weaker as we mature. And ultimately, this enhances our, our witness for Christ. Because there's something appealing about a church working together and being unified, guys. The world, honestly, if it sees it, I don't even think people would know what to do with it. Because they're, they're so used to the other. They're so used to many kingdoms. It's, it's my way. Everybody else should do it the way we do it. Instead of being able to work within our community and work together to see things happen. First on a local immediate church level, but then as a city and as a county working together to see the kingdom advanced. Because that kind of witness of unity is powerful. And dare I say, it's appealing. And it's something that honestly has been missing in our gospel presentation for years. And it's something that I hear time and time again. And listen, I just want to end. I know you, sometimes you leave out of here thinking, man, Dale stepped all over my toes. But I, I just want to end this message by saying how thankful that I am for you guys. As, as people come and visit, they hang out with you, they see something different. And one of the ways that I see that every Sunday morning is the fact that I have to kick some of you out so I can go to lunch. But listen, I would take that problem any day over a church that bolts as soon as I say amen. And I've preached in those churches that before I can get down off the stage, everyone is gone. And they don't act like they, spend, they want to spend any time with each other talking to anyone. And listen, I, I, the reason why it's even more amazing to me that you guys hang out, and, and again, a lot of you hang out here and then you go hang out somewhere to eat together, is I already know how much time you already spend together and you still want to see each other. Guys, that is a powerful witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so my question for you as I close is, what will you do today by God's grace to maintain unity in your marriage, in your small group, and in your church? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of unity. May we, as Church on the Way, be good stewards and maintain that unity that you have called us to. And Father, I pray that you would help us to walk in humility 
and submission to one another, Lord. That, that we would root out the pride in our lives that, that just seeks to divide us, that seeks to control other people, to, to tell them how to live. And instead, Lord, you would help us to, to, to draw and to focus our own sin in the ways that we are alike rather than better. And that that would enable us then, Lord, to speak the truth in love. And Lord, that we wouldn't just speak it, but people would hear it because of our humility and mutual submission. Father, may we be a church that is unified around the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be people that are unified around the gospel and not our own many agendas. Lord, we need your help. We admit that this morning, Lord. We need your spirit to work in and through us so that we might mature and become the people that you want us to be. I ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 A couple